Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today we have on with us Paul Anthony Wallace, who's going to discuss his new book, The Scars of Eden. Extraterrestrials are a hot topic today, and so is God. Is there any chance that these two are really the same? Could we have mistaken the word God for the powerful ones in the interpretation of our religious writings and mythology? Paul Wallace is a theologian and a linguistic scholar, and believes we may have done just this. He has spent 33 years of his life as a senior churchman, church doctor, theological educator, and archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. These studies in languages, linguistics, and theology have taken him all over the world in search of diverse sources, to explore the realm of spirituality and mysticism, probing the world mythology and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins and the releasing of our potential for a better, more conscious human experience. Paul's new book, The Scars of Eden, will give us a deep dive into how these facts may have been hiding in plain sight. Paul is also a musician, a mystic, a healing practitioner in the Christian tradition, an enthusiastic chef, and a pair barefoot walker. Welcome to the show, Paul. And I, my first two questions are, what is a barefoot walker? And did they throw you out of the church? Good day, Bob. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on your show. And yes, I'm, I'm happy to dive into that question. A barefoot walker, well, it's funny. You know, a lot of people just prefer to walk barefoot. And growing up, I like to be out of my shoes as often as possible. And I had no particular reason other than a preference for how it felt. And then in later life, I developed um, sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And sleep apnea um, happens to some of us as we age where the back of our throat loosens a bit. And when we sleep, we will stop breathing because our throat will close, block the airways, and then you wake up coughing and spluttering. And so this was ruining my night's sleep and consequently everything else. Mm -hmm. And so I had a sleep test, and sure enough, that's what it was, sleep apnea. Every two minutes I'd stop breathing for up to 37 seconds. And they said, you'll need one of these. And they gave me a CPAP machine, which is a very confronting piece of technology. It looks like a life support machine. Yeah. It makes this terrible gurgling noise right <laughs> next to your bed while you and your spouse are trying to get a good night's sleep. And a lot of people struggle to get used to them, as did mm-hmm. I. Now, they work fine for a lot of people, but the adjustment is tough. And I was finding... This is making it even harder for me to sleep, adapting to this. And I had some pressured situations at work, and I thought, I need my bad night's sleep, at least. <laughs> yeah. I can't be experimenting with this at the same time. So I, I thought, understand I'll come that, ba- actually. come back to it later, I <laughs> Yeah. So a little later, I said to my wife, Ruth, I really should give the CPAP machine another go. And she said, well, before we spend $1,000 on a CPAP mm-hmm. machine, would you be willing to try an earthing mat. Now, an earthing mat is essentially something that earths you in the same way that you'd earth a piece of electrical equipment in your home. It, it connects ground. your electromagnetic field to the ground. That's right. Okay, so it's a grounding wire. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the equivalent of sleeping on the ground mm-hmm. and lets you do while you're asleep exactly what you'd do if you were walking barefoot on the ground. I had no expectation this would work, but because Ruth had asked me, I said, yes, dear, I will give it a go. (laughs) And from the first night, I was breathing through my nose for the first time in as long as I could remember, 
I slept absolutely quietly, no snoring, no waking up, coughing and spluttering. Wow. I couldn't believe it. And then I had to work my way backwards and think, why is this working? Mm-hmm. And I had to work out that the communication loop between the back of your throat and your brain must use electromagnetic field. And that by regularizing my electromagnetic field, I had fixed the communication loop. Logically, that, that's what it has to be. So that was my introduction to grounding or earthing. And so since that time, I've been much more conscious about going out barefoot. And I always sleep on my earthing mat. And if I don't, I wake up coughing and spluttering. So that's what that is. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of people use it and find health benefits from it. But for, for me, it was the sleep apnea thing. that uh, I had never heard of me. that. I had never heard of that. I had heard of barefoot walking that people found more grounded with that. Um, But that's about it. (laughs) Well, I think that's why I think that's why they feel more grounded with it, because we live in an electromagnetic soup Mm -hmm. uh, in insulated cars, insulated houses and connecting our body's natural EMF with the Earth's EMF. It's only logical if you think about it, that should be good for you. We are earthlings. We do live on the right, planet. Right. And I just found not through theory, just by doing it, mm-hmm. that it had this health benefit for me. So I'm, I'm sold on it. And you know what? This is bringing me to a question that I had way into your book, and I'm still going to ask it now. Are we AI to another species? <laughs> are we artificial intelligence? Have we been engineered? And um, we're really artificial intelligence or what we consider that a computer or a machine or to another species. And have I just messed in this interview up by jumping to the end? <laughs> no, no, that's so fine. Good. <laughs> we, let's get straight into that question. Mm-hmm. Where we um, actually need to ground, just like electricity needs to ground, like a machine would we sure. would need to ground. Are we artificial? Short answer, yes. At this stage, I, I wouldn't see that, though, in terms of a fusion of, like, uh, electronic technology with an organic. I don't think we're quite there. I think there are some who would like to take us there, but Mm -hmm. certainly artificial in the sense that when I got into some really fundamental translation work in the book of Genesis, because my background in all this is is through a, a journey in ministry. I was 33 years in Christian ministry as a church doctor, theological educator, archdeacon for the Anglican Church. And it was my engagement with the Bible in all of that that started waving some red flags at me because I was spotting anomalies in the stories that we tell from those texts. Mm-hmm. So when I finally had some time to step aside and do the work of drilling down into translation, because my first love is languages. Right. So whenever I go to a text, my question is always, what do the words mean? Mm-hmm. And when I started addressing those questions at a fundamental level, what I found is that there is another story hidden in plain sight that says that there have been external interventions in our evolution as a species. Now, that's not a random story. It's actually a repeat of the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, Assyrian stories on which the Genesis stories are based. And those Mesopotamian stories say that we were evolving away, developing happily on the planet, and then we were visited and colonized by another species with more advanced tech who genetically modified us so that we could be a useful working class for them. And so there were artificial adaptations made to the primate ancestors who were here at that point, and they resulted in us, these experiments. This is a really bizarre story, and if it was only (laughs) Genesis and the Mesopotamian stories that told it, you might say, what an imagination those guys had, (laughs) except you can go all around the planet and find reiterations of that explanation in world mythology and ancestral narratives all around the world. And that's the journey that I take the reader on in Escaping from Eden, Mm -hmm. saying that this other story is hidden in plain sight. It's been deliberately suppressed extinguished at various times, 
But really, it just takes a little bit of questioning and translation work to find it in the Bible itself. Now, why has it uh, been hidden? Why would we run away from this knowledge? We as a species, you know, we as a human, I think human species. <laughs> well, I think there are lots of reasons that, that the story gets suppressed and hidden. If I start where I began in the Bible, uh, you would have to go to the 6th century BCE to mm -hmm. address that question because that is when the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, took the shape that they're now in. And there's a very broad scholarly consensus that that is the case, that these scriptures were gathered, built up, edited, harmonized, built up, edited, harmonized, a number of waves of additions and redactions like that. And then you get to the 6th century BCE and the final additions and redactions are made with the agenda of making all those ancient stories appear like a seamless story of Almighty God because the editors at that time were monotheists. They believed there's only one God. It's obviously ours, uh, <laughs> they said, you know, by the name they knew, the holy name of Yahweh. And so they quite literally inserted the name of Yahweh into older texts that didn't have that word in before. And they inserted that name into stories that were stories about Elohim, the powerful ones. And they inserted that name into stories that were about reptilian entities or what we might call uh, dragons, to use the mythological word. And they sort of painted over the fact that there's this huge diversity of stories and memory in the Hebrew canon, memories of times of colonization, memories of a superior species colonizing us and abusing us, memories of a time when human colonies were all governed over by another species who sent our ancestors to war against each other because the visitors were in conflict and competition. We think of all the stories we know of dragons from around the world, go to Wales, you can hear them, China, you can hear them. Mm -hmm. They're just a translation away from being blindingly obvious in the Bible as well. But this veneer of the holy name of Yahweh was put over all these stories because they wanted to teach their central tenet, there is only one God, the source of all things, and his name is Yahweh. Now, that actual point is a wonderful, beautiful point. There's only one God. There's only one source, the source of the cosmos and everything in it. Mm -hmm. When the apostle Paul defined God when he was speaking to a Greek audience that knew nothing about the Hebrew scriptures. That was the definition he gave, the source of the cosmos and everything in it. The problem is the old stories of the Hebrew canon are not about that. They're about something else. And when you confuse the two, you end up with a very odd image of God who is at war with himself, where thousands of humans can get killed because he's at war with himself. He makes mistakes. He fails to anticipate things a child could anticipate. He's violent, unforgiving, implacable, unpredictable. And that mess and confusion, that those were the sort of red flags I was mentioning earlier. Right. Those are, those are the clues. Mm -hmm. that something else was going on in the original story. So that's the first cover-up, if, if you like, that I could talk about in that translation. And Christianity did a sort of parallel cover-up, where mm -hmm. in the early days there was this huge debate, what do we do with the Hebrew scriptures? Should they be regarded as scripture for Christianity? And there was this big debate at the time of the apostles, at the time of the early church, in Acts 15, we've got the record of a council of the apostles saying, uh, no, those scriptures were for another time and another people, uh, for the Jewish people. Christianity is not going to be built on that. And yet, 300 odd years later, the church decided to bring it back in with that sixth century edit and make that a foundational document for Christianity. And so they sowed that same confusion about what God means into Christianity from the get-go. And as the empire took over and officialized orthodoxy, sort of militarized it, where if you didn't believe this narrow orthodoxy, you, you 
probably wouldn't get a job now. And if you'd written non-orthodox books, well, they might be burned and they certainly wouldn't be any in public libraries. These other memories got pushed out to such an extent and with such violence that many of the texts that remembered these other stories were literally buried in the desert to stop them being destroyed, to try and preserve this memory for later generations. And that's the story of the Nag Hammadi Desert and the Gnostic texts. Mm-hmm. But, and so those are just two examples. Uh, if you go to uh, Central and South America, a very graphic example of how it happens, the Portuguese, the Spanish went in with letters patent from the Pope and the kings of Spain and Portugal to use whatever force was necessary to take that territory for the church, mm-hmm. for the king of Spain, for the king of Portugal, yeah. and Catholicize those countries. And what that meant was that they had to take charge militarily, and then they became the police, the army, the educators, the public servants, so on and so forth. The they power. became the news yeah. agents. They became the yeah. power. So they had to be the ones to say what was what. When you conquer a country with force, you can't have an independent news agency. (laughs) If you you want to say, exactly, it's so relevant in 2021. It is, unfortunately. But if you've taken over a country, you want to be able to say there was no massacre in that square. You can't have an independent agency reporting on it. And what that meant in Central and South America was you had to get rid of all the other authoritative voices, which meant executing the priesthoods. And the stories that they carried about human origins, our place in the cosmos, now irrelevant because they were going to be deleted and replaced by Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And so you've got schools and churches teaching what's what on every possible topic. And they executed the priests. They burned the alternative stories except we know that some copies, uh, obviously a couple would have been sent to the Vatican Library and the libraries of the Kings of Spain and Portugal. I'd love to know what's in their vault, that Vatican vault. So would I, absolutely, (laughs) but some of it leaks back because 200 years after those invasions, some priests who had become a secret priesthood, obviously, Mm -hmm. came forward to a Roman Catholic priest, credit where it's due, uh, a Dominican friar called Francisco Jimenez, and they said, would you be interested in our story of who we are and where we came from? And he said, yes, I'd be very interested. And he translated it into Spanish. It's called the Popol Vuh. And Mm -hmm. there is another text that repeats this ancient story of a planet post-cataclysm being visited by a species with advanced tech who genetically modify our ancestors to be a workforce. It's the same story, but a different language from a different culture. And so that sort of suppression and reappearance is something I talk about in The Scars of Eden, that the Mm -hmm. old stories never go away. And if you want to know the old stories, ask a local, because it's the local mythology and folklore that carries these ancient stories these other memories of our origins as a species. And this mythology, I mean, every country has a mythology that does go right back to this story in one way or another, but the core of the story is pretty much the same. Um, One thing I don't understand, though, is why couldn't we have a... um, a god, like a, like a central intelligence or a divine intelligence that was over all worlds, including these other um, species that came in. Why did we have to get rid of them? <laughs> well, I think, I think we do. I think the idea of a zero point, of a source of the cosmos and everything in it, has survived and is true. I, I believe that. And if you listen to the language of quantum research today, it's, it's so interesting that they will use the language of God to describe the concepts and phenomena they're describing, but not in the anthropomorphic sense that we get used to in religion, but in the sense that there is something on which everything else depends and that it's not a beginning, 
it's a it's a source point that is still generating the material universe. Now, interestingly, this is what was believed by the very early church fathers. So that definition that Paul gives of God, the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being. Mm-hmm. I believe that. I think Paul has described it very accurately. Plato half a millennium before, used very similar language. And he is an absolutely foundational person to know about because his concept of God was the concept the early church fathers had. And he got to his belief through a number of methods. And one was logic applied to things we all observe. So what today we might call science. He called it philosophy. He also credited ancestral Uh, narratives for some of his information. He also credited information that came to him through altered states of consciousness, um, Mm. through a psychoaffective tea that the ancient Greeks used called kaikion. And from all those sources and through creating really a synthesis of, of world knowledge at that time, he came to a coherent view of the origins of the universe and the origins of us And he put it forward in his books in a way that is still very compelling two and a half thousand years later. And he held together this idea of a cosmic source that is, he described it as a unified field of intelligence, consciousness, and that it fractalized to form the material universe, that the material universe came into existence so that that consciousness could express itself and experience itself. Again, I know people into quantum, will, their ears will be pricking up at this point because we are doing experiments right now that show that consciousness is a, an organizer of material phenomena, that consciousness impacts material reality. Well, Plato took that to its ultimate conclusion and said that consciousness is the original thing and that the material universe comes from that. Now, that might sound very airy-fairy and vague, except the moment you ask, what would that look like in nuts and bolts terms? Take that idea to an engineer and say, engineer, what would this look like in 3D? And he would describe the theory of panspermia. And the theory of panspermia is a theory held by serious, credentialed, peer-reviewed, scientists, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, from his research, believed in and taught panspermia. Today's researchers in DNA, many of them hold to it. Maxim Kukov, Vladimir Sherbak of the Fezenkov Astrophysical Institute and the Kazakh Al-Farabi National University, top authorities in DNA research, teach the same thing. So what is it? Panspermia is the idea that life is the rule rather than the exception in the cosmos, Mm -hmm. that the cosmos is full of life and that the genetic coding for biological, sentient, conscious, intelligent life has actually been spread throughout the cosmos, that whenever it lands in an hospitable environment, meaning a planet with water, it Mm -hmm. will generate forms of life similar to us. Well, that is the nuts and bolts version of Plato saying in the beginning was consciousness and the material universe came into existence to host it. And it's not just DNA scientists and it's not just philosophers like Plato who hold to it. The European Space Agency has spent, I think it's $80 billion, more than that now, testing the theory by sending probes up onto comets to see if they can find the building blocks of life on the comets. Now, if you're throwing that much money at a theory, mm-hmm. well, you know it's got some wheels. It's, it's, yeah. There's some weight to it. And they it had some reason to believe, yeah. Exactly. And so those correlations catch my attention, and I think our ancients tell the story, our space agencies are investigating it, mm-hmm. find it in the meanwhile. Maybe that's something we should give some attention to. You know what? I'm going to take a break now and uh, I want to come back and I'm going to ask you to repeat some of that 
in the layman term, <laughs> All right. um, DNA, can you pick up other, not only are we sending it out through the universe, but can you pick up other in us? Um, oh, yes. Okay, yes. we'll be yes. right Good back. Question. <laughs> we'll be right back. One thing's for certain, life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back with Paul Wallace, and we are talking about the origins, really, of life on Earth. Um, I was happy to hear, I have to, I'm bringing it back a little bit, that we were here first. (laughs) And then ETs came in. But our mythology, our religion, and how those got mixed up, and we've lost our original story, probably. And um, now how... We're starting by science to unravel our story, bring it back. So I'm going to bring Paul back in and have him just go over a little bit what he was saying right before the break. And to be more clear, bring it down to my level, if you can, on that. Thanks, Paul. So where we were was that uh, ancestors in the stories they have left us, Brilliant minds of the past, like Plato, who repeated the same idea, and then contemporary scientists are repeating the same idea, and our space agencies are testing the idea that we developed on this planet as Earth life forms, and then others turned up from elsewhere in the cosmos and just did a little bit of genetic modifying to upgrade us here, to alter us here, upgrade us here. All those sources say the same thing. And the theory of panspermia says that all life in the cosmos is related, that it's the same genetic coding that has produced all life in the cosmos. And so those who turned up and colonized us were really our distant cousins. Mm -hmm. Those who turned up and hybridized with us, they were really our distant cousins. Those who upgraded us to be more conscious were our distant cousins and that we're living in a cosmos as part of a cosmic family. Now, Bob, you mentioned that you, you began life, you, you come from a Catholic background. Mm-hmm. The language I've just used is the language you will now hear from some very top Roman Catholic authorities. If wow. you listen to uh, Father Jose Gabriel Funes, who is the director of the Vatican Observatory in Arizona, or you listen to... Um, Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who was Pope Benedict XVI's senior advisor in paranormal ministry. If you listen to Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, they all speak in those terms of us having a wider cosmic family. And their idea of God is big enough to allow for a populated universe. And they want people to be ready not only for the idea that we might have a wider cosmic family, but ready to be in contact. And so more than a decade ago, they held a symposium of top theologians and scholars to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And they came out and they met the press and basically said, there is no issue. Mm -hmm. If there are other species in the universe, it just tells us that God's been a bit busier than we were aware of. And I love how they put that. Talk and about simplifying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it doesn't mean we have to be uh, naive about things or assume that cosmic neighbors are all perfect and we're trying to evolve to be as great as they are because, and I think this is worth saying, just because our cosmic neighbors might have better tech than we have mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're superior to us in every way. And if we listen to some of our ancestral stories about paleo contact, other species visiting us in the past, some of their behavior doesn't sound too hot from a moral standpoint. They seem to colonize planet Earth in the same way we've colonized each other's countries, mm-hmm. which usually doesn't look too pretty. So I think. Did we learn it from them or? Oh, great question. <laughs> Or were we nice before they got here? <laughs> well, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think if we go back far enough, we were nice in an animal kind of way. We lived mm-hmm. like the other animals did on the planet. And I think you're right, Bob. I think we learned good and bad from those who came and colonized us. And certainly in terms of how you run a society. So, There's the story the Babylonians tell of the Apkalu turning up and teaching our ancestors who lived in the Fertile Crescent how to farm, how to create a legal system, how to create banking, money, Mm -hmm. uh, all these systems, civil engineering, sanitation, and all of a sudden we've got a civilization springing up in the Fertile Crescent. Why did they do that, though? Why did they want us to make that leap? Yes, why? One way or the other, forward or back. Great question. Well, I think it's analogous to what we do when, as empires, we invade other people's countries. So Mm -hmm. um, I can talk about the British Empire because I I grew up in the UK. And certainly when the British Empire used to invade people's countries, what would happen is they would turn up in force and use Mm -hmm. superior technology to take control of that country with violence. Yeah. And then we, the colonizers, become the army. Everyone else is a guerrilla or an insurgent and can be shot, killed, imprisoned. We're the police. Uh, we're the teachers. We're the news agency. And then we benefit from sitting at the top of the economic tree. We start taking all the diamonds and gold and cocoa mm-hmm. and sugar home to feed us and glorify our home country. But then once we have created the money system, once we set up the banks, once we set the commodity prices, the exchange rates, so on and so forth, we can actually start releasing the country back to the locals. They can be their own police. They can be their own army. They can be their own school teachers, their own public servants. Mm -hmm. We'll be in the governor's house. And then, okay, then you get to a point where the governor can go home and the local can become a governor because the commodity prices, the exchange rates, et cetera, et cetera, mean we're still sitting at the top of the tree, even though we've gone home. Well, it's very possible our planet has been colonized in a way that's very similar to that. And so I think, yes, maybe we learned that. Now, you may be hearing a downpour. Uh, oh, okay. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm little nature has blown into this. Okay, sorry this, about that. This is my shipping crate cabin, which you can uh, read about in Escaping from Eden, which is great until it rains, and then you do hear it. Yeah, so okay, I wasn't sure what was happening. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Then we can live through the so, rain. <laughs> so on the one hand, they set up these systems so that they can go home and still benefit. Mm-hmm. But also, if you've created a legal system and a money system, that's in a way a slightly more humane version of a slavery system, where you've created an order that will maintain a workforce as a workforce and the elites as the elites. And it's interesting that even Jesus um, talks about money that way. He was asked a pointy question one time about paying taxes and... um, He said, well, whose head is on the coin? Whose money are you using? Yeah. Well, you're using the money that belongs to the powers. So, you know, do the math. And then another question asked about money and paying taxes. And he says, the powers of this world, do they tax 
their own children or do they tax everybody else? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, everybody else. So Jesus is hinting at the, at the notion that when you have a money system, it's really a social order that's being anchored at the same time to keep the elite elite and keep the workforce the workforce. And that's as useful to human governors as it is to ET governors. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's where we learned it, is what you're saying. I think where so. Where we learned it, yeah. yeah. Why are they back now? Or, or are we just more aware now? Are we evolving or, or are they needing something or, you know? Yes, it's a great question. Um, I'm not sure if they ever fully went away yeah. because you can find stories of contact almost from every age and every culture. So they may be more visible at times and less visible at others. I mean, you go back to, for instance, the dragon stories I mentioned earlier. That's a time when our colonizers were visible and they were terrifying. And then you go to, um, say, the story of the Sumerian culture, and you might think, okay, well, they're sort of in the mix, but maybe they're now living on another planet, still pulling strings. Other times you think, okay, maybe, maybe they've gone and we're just aping what we saw before. But right now, of course, it's topical because we're talking about the UFO phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Are we in company? And we're hoping in a couple of days to get a little bit more information from the Pentagon on that question. Is the company that we're in today the same company we had tens of thousands of years ago? That's a good question. Just before Christmas, Haim Eshed, Israel's former chief of space security, the brigadier general who held that position for 27 years, said that on the basis of his experience in that work, clearly, his understanding is that not only are we in company, but that there is an intergalactic federation in contact with us at a covert government level that's chosen not to self-disclose. Now, everybody's jaw should have dropped when they heard that from an authority like him. Somehow, people let that news wash over them. But what he's saying, in a way, shouldn't be a surprise because that language of an intergalactic federation, well, the Bible calls that the Sky Council or the Heavenly Council. The Sumerians, the same. Uh, Read about the kings and the Vedas. Um, or the Greek gods, or the Norse god. It's the same picture. And what it suggests is there's a whole spectrum of ET demographics who feel they have a stakeholding in Project Earth, and they're somewhat in conflict with one another over how Project Earth ought to be managed. And there's been some kind of a non-disclosure, non-interference agreement that's been in place although clearly not watertight because the stories of interference are ages old. Mm -hmm. But I think to me that rings true, this repetition of this story, that there are various ET demographics, some who may have been around for tens of thousands of years and some who may be newer in the mix, and they are all bumping up against each other as they um, discuss how to manage our planet. And my hope is that if we can get more disclosure, then we can be a more transparent and productive presence on that table because this is our planet after all. Now, why has our government or the committee, the Galactic Committee, chosen to become more transparent now? Because it seems like we've all heard about this and we all have heard stories but suddenly all of our governments are coming out and saying oh yeah ufos oh yeah they're around well why are they suddenly copping to it admitting to it when um i think they've had this knowledge for god years and years a long time yeah so why are now do they want to uh come out with the information and maybe it is coming from a higher committee yeah. is saying, okay, let's open uh, it up. I think so. I'm not sure that a higher committee is saying, let's open it up. I think the higher committee is a little less stable than it's been. And so there's a bit more leakage oh, going on. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this policy, mm-hmm. yes, this policy of non disclosure has really been in place in force in, in, in recent times for 70 years, 74 years, really. Mm-hmm. 
it's the day after Roswell. Because prior to Roswell, if you listen to the American authorities who really set the agenda, prior to Roswell, you would hear the American Air Force saying, we are pursuing these UFOs. We're going to find out what these flying saucers are. We're trying to shoot them down. As soon as we have one and we know where they've come from, we'll let you know. Mm-hmm. And then overnight, the story changes to there is no UFO phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And that was the policy for 70 years. Then it changes in 2017 with the uh, semi-official leakage of the footage of the USS Nimitz engaging with tic-tac-shaped craft. Mm-hmm. And so since that time, we've had these disclosures. We've had um, Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, talking openly about extraterrestrial craft, about the Pentagon body that researches them. We've heard from Eric Davis, a senior physicist who briefs that body. We've heard from the former chief of French security, Alan Gillier, who was there when that body was being set up, and he's confirmed it's to do with the investigation of UFOs, materials from crashes. We've got physicists with the eminence of Jacques Vallée talking openly that part of his work is examining metamaterials. That's materials from crash retrievals of craft that were engineered in zero G off planet out of the atmosphere. All this is now out in the public domain. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really there, and I think what's going to happen after the 25th with the Senate intelligence briefings, I think it's really an insurance against disclosure. I think they're sort of wanting to go back to the position that says the UFO phenomenon is real. We just don't know who's piloting them Mm -hmm. because then it's a simple step if suddenly we're buzzed by 200 UFOs over Washington, (laughs) D.C. Then it's an easy step to say, oh, we just find out who's piloting them. Mm-hmm. Much harder to go from there is no UFO phenomenon to, oh, we know who's piloting them. Do you see the yeah. fallout politically would just be absurd and unmanageable. And so I think they're taking that mid-step because they're worried that some disclosure is going to be made by some. another authority, <laughs> not the Americans, yeah. <laughs> and maybe not humans. Yeah. Well, here's one thing that I have to say, and um, being an American, I don't know that much about other governments. Our government isn't real good at keeping secrets. You know, it seems like <laughs> one way or another, it'll come out in one form or another. It's not always the real form, but it, it, we're just not good at keeping secrets. So how can all those people at the top know this information and it's not gotten out, or is it only one or two guys at the top who know? Well, for the most part, I think uh, things are managed through compartmentalizing the knowledge. So there may be a very few who have the big picture of what's going on, uh, and then the information is really all in compartments. So the people, for instance, who are examining materials from crash retrievals don't necessarily know about contact at a covert government level, mm-hmm. just to, to put it that way. Right. Um, in the past, that compartmentalization of information was guarded uh, with death threats. So all the people in Roswell who knew what had crashed were silenced, we now know, with death threats from American military. Jeez. I grew up in the UK And you might remember Ronald Reagan's Star Wars uh, initiatives, the SDI, it's called, Mm -hmm. Strategic Something Initiative. And that was space, um, that was weapons in space. Mm -hmm. And when he announced it, uh, with all the money that was going into developing that, the way he phrased it was really enigmatic and left everyone asking, are these weapons to manage war on Earth or are they against an ET threat? Mm Mm-hmm. I lived near a research base in the UK that was heavily involved in developing that tech. And over a very few years, 25 of the top research scientists on Ronald Reagan's Star Wars project committed suicide. And because oh. uh, you're not uh, seeing the pictures here, that's in air quotes. Yeah. Uh, because, oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, 25 
scientists on the same project, one after the other, committing suicide. Really, do we believe that? Well, the leader of the union for mm. scientists, uh, Clive Jenkins, came forward, went to the press, and he said that number of suicides is statistically impossible. Right. And the coroners refused to return uh, verdicts of suicide. They were returning open verdicts. The families didn't believe a word of this official story, mm. and it became pretty clear that there was a huge cover-up of information that had a danger of leaking out of its compartment into wider society. So I grew up knowing that there is a threat of death and violence hanging over anyone who wants to leak the information that their particular department has. We're out of that now, and I, I, I think there, is, there are contingents within the Pentagon and within covert government who would like to see more disclosure, but I think there are others who don't. And so I there's a tussle going on. The, the secrecy. Why would they risk something like 25 suicides when obviously there cannot be? And the exposure from that, rather than just coming out and saying, yeah, there are UFOs, there is life on other planets. I well, mean, at that point, clearly it was a threat to the rest of us, which mm -hmm. is often how it's done. Uh, in 1600, Roman Catholic Church, um, burned to death this amazing scholar, uh, Dominican friar, Giordano Bruno. And he talked about heightening our consciousness, developing our mental powers. And he also talked about life on other planets. And yeah. unfortunately, though that was acceptable on the other side of the world, in India, in Italy, in the late 1500s, unacceptable. So they executed him in the most violent way possible mm. to silence others. And right. well, you can do it that way, or you can do it through a series of totally impossible coincidences, um, the suicides, I mean. And so mm -hmm. there is that silencing going on, because I think once to keep the cat the is out of the bag, to keep the hierarchy. Okay. Yeah. So if you it's go from a world... Yeah. yeah, I think so. If you go from a world where the president's in charge, where mm -hmm. the prime minister's in charge, where the queen is in charge, to a world where they're having to say, um, we don't really know what's going on and we're not really in charge either. It's a bunch of ETs. We're not quite right. sure where they came from. Yeah. Well, where's your social order the moment you come out with that? Where's your social order the moment you say, actually, we gave away our power in agreements made 70 years ago? I mean, would you believe anything a government authority said to you yeah. after that. All right. I have to bring up more of a um, current. Now, I'm assuming that, let's say, the president of the United States would have that information. Now, if you um, give that kind of information to Donald Trump, you know, mm. I think you're going to get a tweet <laughs> saying, of oh, course, God, there are UFOs yeah. out here. You know, But he did well, announce Star Wars, too. Well, yes, he did. Yes, he did. That's right. In a similar fashion to Ronald Reagan. But the president is not at the top of the tree in terms of uh, information. Mm -hmm. The president is based on a need-to-know basis uh, yeah, okay. by intelligence. Yeah. So, I mean, that's true just with regard to intelligence, international espionage. So you can bet your bottom dollar it's true for... For, for this, for this, yeah. ET politics. <laughs> so, yes, I, I doubt <laughs> I doubt that uh, those who know the whole picture would have briefed Donald Trump on absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, we were told, weren't we, by, um, by it was President Clinton that he had asked for a, a full disclosure briefing for himself on the ET question, and mm -hmm. they said, uh, sir, you don't need to know that. And he told Obama the public that. Went in he told the public that. that. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize that. I know Obama went in and said, you know, what about Roswell and all this? I honestly don't remember ever hearing the answer. <laughs> oh, he's given some uh, really enigmatic answers. Has he? Yeah. Just enough to tell us that he knows more than we do, but that should be no surprise. Right, right. 
Um, there has been over the last 50 years that I know of anyway, um, talk about abductions. I mean, it goes back through history. Um, I actually know some people who have talked about it. Um, why would they, what do we have to offer to um, the superior race or this race that comes and visits us? What do they want from us? Sure. And because, you know, ET abductions, today in our culture, if somebody says, I was abducted by an alien, mm -hmm. I was used for hybridization, we generally react as if we'd never heard anything so ridiculous. Right. And yet, that's exactly the story that's been carried by ancestral narratives all around the world. Every culture has stories of ET abduction for hybridization. Mm -hmm. uh, and I talk about this in The Scars of Eden, and the correlations of details are so precise uh, that you have to begin taking that testimony seriously. Why would they do it? Well, if I go to Ghana, so the land of my father's on my father's side is Ghana, mm -hmm. and there's a tradition of testimony there called the Mami Water stories. Mami Water mm -hmm. stories say that there is a non-human presence on planet Earth that takes human beings periodically because they want to create a new generation of mammy water people who have more human DNA in them. They're wanting to enhance their species with what we have. Now, if we go back to the theory of panspermia, it says we're all related, that mm -hmm. the genetic coding has gone throughout the cosmos. But every planet is a little bit different. Every story is going to be a little bit different. And it may be that there are particulars about human beings that make us rather special, that we are a unique fusion of animal strength, mammal emotion, higher consciousness, that gives us some attributes that some of our neighbors might not have. Mm -hmm. I've come to believe that human beings have an emotionality that some of our neighbors don't have, that makes our lives more colorful, more interesting. And I think they like that. I think our physicality is more robust than some of our visitors as well. And I think they find that attractive. We have a, an ability in the area of creativity and compassion that I think is not universal. Now, if you go to the Bible, for the Bible story of hybridization, you'll go to Genesis 6. And there it says that our ET visitors found the human females very attractive they looked down and they said, wow, human girls, they're awesome. Let's have some of that in our gene pool. Mm -hmm. I don't find that hard to believe. I think there is something unique about human beings that does make us attractive to other species. But there may be others here who are part of failing species that are losing their fertility, that their gene pool is too limited, and they really need to refresh who they are as a species. And some of our ancient narratives, which include the story of fairy abductions and mummy water abductions and Mahurani abductions, are about that. They are about a species wanting to enhance themselves. And as I said before, just because they've got better tech doesn't mean they're better than us in every way. We have something that they want. That's the bottom line of all those stories. And it's such a prevalent story. We treat it as so fringe. But in my research journey for the Scars of Eden, I was reminded that the whole of Europe is named after an abductee, Europa, a daughter of a king of Phoenicia who was abducted by a non-human and forced to have three hybrid children, one of them being Minos, the progenitor of the Minoan culture. That's taught as history in Greece, not as mythology. And we need to get back in touch with what our ancestors have been telling us about our place in the cosmos. So do you think the human race is ready for this? Do you think we're ready for this? Somebody apparently does since it's opening up. But um, do you think first we're ready for it? And then how come the rich people seem to want to go find another planet? <laughs> <And> <laughs> that leave is us a little here. bit worrying. I am aware of that. And that is for real. <laughs> there are some serious and oh, seriously serious. wealthy people yeah. <laughs> who want to be on that ark ship getting off planet Earth. Right. And they that's can't not a new seem thing. to get off fast enough, too. It's frightening. I, 
it is a bit worrying. You wonder what they know. But it's an old story as well. You go to the book of Revelation and breakaway civilization is mentioned there, this huge cuboid craft arriving to take 144,000 human beings off to another region of space. We've got another grid now to understand that story by. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't remember what you were actually asking with that question. (laughs) (laughs) We're, we're, how come we're opening up to this and why are the rich people running? <laughs> That's basically, uh, yes. yeah. But why, uh, why are we suddenly open to this? You know, um, or uh, is it not that we're open to it? It's just that the powers that be have decided yeah. to share it. And, we, and are we, are we ready for it? Was your other are question? Are we ready? No, oh, yeah. Even you I know, forgot I my think, question. <laughs> frankly, you know, are we ready to be kept in the dark? Are we ready to have people representing the human race on the Intergalactic Federation that we don't know who they are or what they're saying or in in whose interest they're making decisions? Are we ready for more of that? Or are we ready for a bit more democracy? Are we ready to know what's going on and be stakeholders in our own future? I think we are ready. I actually think that if you told uh, the public we are in contact. We have been for decades. We're in negotiations as to how Earth is managed. I reckon about 70% of people by now would be saying, yes, I thought something like that was going on because there's been that much leaked for so long. And I do think that's why there's this soft disclosure going on to get us to a place where that openness wouldn't cause political panic and chaos. I think very deliberate. We've seen such amazing disclosures in the last four years and that's hardly, a blip, so amazing. hardly yeah. a blip in public reaction. I think that's what's wanted. We're being softened up for more information being out there. And these are the people who can't handle globalization. You know, we, we can't exactly handle global, globalization. And yet we're looking at the whole universe blowing open. And somehow that's more acceptable, which is a weird, weird thing. Well, it's funny. I hear from a lot of people. Every week I hear from people, some weeks every day, by people whose worldview has just been blown open, either by reading The Scars of Eden or because of an experience that they've had that has woken them up to the fact that something else is going on. And I often hear from people who say, though it's overwhelming, suddenly – so much stuff makes sense. So all those anomalies I talked about in the Bible, all those stories of a violent God who you then have to worship, all that nonsense suddenly falls away and you've got a coherent picture. Mm-hmm. Why the world is working as it does, why we have international wars that have nothing to do with conflicts between countries. They're about mm-hmm. something else. It's elites duking it out about something else. All that suddenly makes sense. And in that sense, I think we are more than ready for disclosure because the stories we are being told about what the world is, who we are, why things are run the way they are, don't make sense. They're distressing, they're abusive, they're psychologically damaging. And I think we would all be in a better place if we actually knew what is going on, even if it's a little bit messy, because I think we're grown-ups. I think we're ready too. As I shared with you, I was brought up Catholic. And then suddenly I started looking at the Bible from the ET point of view about 30 years ago. And it made more sense there, you know, yes. that uh, Mary was taken up and, you know, these, these people were taken up into the sky. Well, that's, that's, right. that's kind of an ET thing. <laughs> it certainly it is. made more sense. You know, this is a fascinating subject, and um, I'm, I really want to talk to you after the Senate comes out, too. Um, but we're going to have to wrap it up, and I want to make sure everybody knows how to get hold of you and get hold of your books as well. So if you sure. want to give us your website and your connections. Definitely. Do. Well, for my books, The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden, you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, High, Book Depository, wherever books are sold. Mm-hmm. And find the scars of Eden and escaping from Eden. If you get hold of those and you want to talk to me about what you're reading, then go to the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube or to the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. I'm always in the comments. 
having conversations. If you become a member of my channel, I'll have a live conversation with my members every two weeks. And uh, I get so much energy and inspiration from those conversations. Go to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. And you can keep up with everything I'm doing with the scars of Eden, escaping from Eden, and the work that is going to result in the next book. So find me there, and I would love to meet you there and get in conversation with you. Great. Thank you so much, Paul, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.